0: Thank you. Welcome back to our chronological journey through the Old and New Testament. We are going to revisit last week's topic briefly and then we're going to look at what comes next. Of course, last week we were looking at a nation gripped with fear and anxiety. Does that sound familiar? I think that when we think about God's Word, we realise that actually what has happened then will happen now. We have repeated patterns throughout history, and the Word of God shows us that actually nothing changes. Irrespective of when we live, what season of, of the world and life's history we live in, there is the same potential for nations to be gripped by fear and anxiety. But what I love about the Word of God is that it can teach us so much about how to live, how to respond to the challenges that we face and and how to live a a better life, a more fruitful life as a result. The nation of Israel is is gripped with fear and anxiety and it's led them to make a, a poor decision, a poor decision even in spite of God's warning. And what that revealed to us is that the condition of their heart was not where it should have been. This was a repeated pattern. It wasn't something new to the people of Israel. God makes that clear as well, that their their propensity to wander was part of their makeup. What is the scenario? Well, the situation is that they are feeling threatened by their enemies, the enemies on their borders. Nothing new there, but They come up with a new solution. So there is something new in this. The circumstance isn't new, but their solution is. What is the solution that they come up with? Well, they long for a king. Rather than trust in God to deliver them as he has always done, they chose to desire and call out for a king. It's a different we could say a natural, a man-made solution to their problem. And God being God, He warns them of their chosen path. We said last week that love always warns, love always warns, but also love does not force itself on another and doesn't force them to comply or obey. And so God warns and the people don't take God's warning. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to actually just draw out verses from 9, 10, 12 and 13. If you get a chance, you can read, of course, the whole portion. It's a great portion. And that'll help to fill in the, the fuller picture. But I want to just offer the headline truths from that. So first Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he, he stood a head taller than anyone else. So what can we draw from, from these words? Well, it tells us that this young man Saul was impressive. He was impressive, and it also indicates how they define impressive. What is their measuring rod for impressive? Well, it says that he was taller than anyone else, a, a whole head taller than anyone else. What does that imply? Well, it implies that they're looking for somebody who is visibly, physically impressive. We might say, therefore, that he was unrivaled in that regard compared to all of his other Brothers from the nation. It also says that he was from a long line of significant men. So he looks like a man of substance and stature. And, and we're going un- to understand what kind of substance Saul is made of and what kind of stature he holds as we continue to read. So let's go to further on in this chapter to a verses 18 through to 24. Basically, what happens in the lead up to this is that God orchestrates a circumstance for Saul and Samuel to encounter each other. Donkeys go missing from the household of Saul. Saul is sent out to find them. And in the process of that, he encounters Samuel. You've got to ask the question, does God orchestrate the donkeys going missing? Yes, he does. He orchestrates a problem that will ultimately come to a solution. So verses 18 to 24, Saul approached Samuel in the city gate and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? In this moment, Saul is looking for a solution to his problem. Where do you go to to get a solution for your problem? You look for the seer. Verse 19, I am the seer, Samuel answered. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. When I send you off in the morning, I'll tell you everything that's in your heart. Well, wow. As for the donkeys that wandered away from you three days ago, don't worry about them because they've been found. And who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? Saul responded, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? Samuel took Saul and his servant, brought them to the banquet hall and gave them a place at the head of the 30 or so men who had been invited then Samuel said to the cook, get the portion of meat that I gave you and told you to set aside. The cook picked up the thigh and what was attached to it and set it before Saul. Then Samuel said, notice that the reserve place is set before you. Eat it because it was saved for you for this solemn event. At the time I said, I've invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. So God orchestrates a problem, donkeys go missing, in order to arrive at a solution and that solution is that Saul has to encounter Samuel. And what happens is in that moment is when they do encounter each other, Samuel reveals something incredible. He says, Who does all Israel desire but you and all your father's family? And, and we get a little insight here into Saul's character, Saul's nature. Saul says, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of Israel's tribes? And isn't my clan the least important of all the clans of the Benjamite tribe? So why have you said something like this to me? So Saul has a degree of understanding of the insignificance of his family line and his tribe in the bigger picture. What does Samuel do? Samuel invites him to the table and gives him the, the the set aside portion, the portion that would normally be set aside for the prophet. And so that speaks to what is about to come. Let's go on into chapter 10, verse 1. It then says that Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance so we see in this a lot going on we see that there's an affection between Samuel and Saul I think Saul must have been quite a likable individual in many regards and and Samuel clearly sees that in him but what this also reveals is that God's willingness to do something should never be mistaken for his perfect will God's willingness to do something should not be mistaken for his perfect will. And what we see in here is that God is willing to go through with this because we know that he has warned the people but said that they can go down the path of their choosing. And so we're going to unpack that a bit more as we journey together. So verses 17 to the first part of of 21. It says here, Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribes of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. When they searched for him, they could not find him. They inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, "He is uh, there he is, hidden among the supplies. There he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. So they got their king. The people got their king, but but this whole portion demonstrates two things. It re-emphasizes that this is not God's perfect plan. And it also emphasizes that Saul doesn't feel called. He doesn't feel called. He's hiding. He's hiding from this moment. He hasn't had what we might say a personal commissioning before the Lord. He's having a very public commissioning in the moment. Uh, but he's not been led uh, personally and, and intimately by God. So, so that raises a lot of concerns, questions that we could look to answer. Let's fast forward into chapter 12. We won't read this, but if you get a chance to look at chapter 12, especially verses 6 to 15, this contains Samuel's final public speech, his final public address. And in this, he reminds, reiterates the people that God is their king, but he also reminds them that they have chosen to reject God. But in this final address, Samuel offers hope and a warning. It's that invitation to return for every single heart to submit themselves to the king, that is God, the king, but a warning of what will happen if they don't. The same warning that has been repeated over and over again. And so let's conclude our reading from chapter 13, verses 5 through to 14. What we get here is the, is the circumstance, the scenario that has driven the people to anxiety and fear in the first place, and that is the Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves in thickets among the rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived, so Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash, I I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favour. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You've been foolish. You've not kept the command the Lord, your God, gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Incredible. Uh, what we see here is the fear and anxiety which appointed Saul to the very position of king is actually revealed in him. So the fear that was gripping the nation is revealed in him and it leads him to sin. It leads him to offer a burnt offering which was not his place or position to do so. That was, that was uh, dedicated for Samuel to do and Samuel was coming. The issue was that Saul was impatient and he was fearful. Two qualities or characteristics that are not in keeping with a man of of faith and it's certainly a man appointed by God to lead the nation. So what we get then is rejection. Rejection of, of Saul and also the declaration that God has found someone else. And wasn't that the whole point in the first place? God will find someone. So what does this portion of God's word teach us? And when I say that, I say that because we remember the words that Paul wrote to Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy. And and these words are are a a welcome uh, challenge and reminder for us every single time we open the word of God to Timothy. And of course, we're looking at chapter 3. What does he say? I'm sure that you could actually repeat these words yourself without me reading them. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is the purpose of the scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And when we say all scripture, we mean all scripture. So even this portion of scripture that we have read together, it is going to be capable of, of training us, of, of correcting us, of, of challenging us, of helping us to grow and develop. And so let's pursue the Lord as we journey through this word. Because there is truth here for us to find and to embrace question on that, how do we know we're being led by the Spirit? Well, we know we're being led by the Spirit when we can use the Word of God to confirm what we sense we are being led to. And so we'll use the Word of God here to confirm what we we feel the, the, the core truths are from this portion of God's Word. We identify the problem first of all in this text and of course we've done that and that is that the people's hearts are far from God which has led them away from his perfect will. Now the question we have to ask is that when things go wrong in life do we double down on the error or do we admit the error and pursue God's solution? When things go wrong do we double down or do we, do we repent and return? What we see here is the people, unfortunately, continue to double down until it's gone too far. Have you ever been that in that place in life? I know I have. I've been in that place years ago where I, I doubled down and I doubled down until it went too far. I think we can all maybe understand that that can be done when we are fearful, But even in this, God is still at work. So even when the people double down to the point where it's gone too far, God is still at work. Here's another question Can God work against his children for their own good? Can God work against his children for their own good? I want to propose, yes, he can. And let's explain that before we get too uh, nervous or concerned about what that might mean. The Bible tells us in Romans that God uses all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So God uses all things. He uses all things. He He loves his chosen nation. They are, remember, his portion and that ultimately they are called according to his purpose and to understand that properly we have to remember that this is not just talking about one generation this is talking about a nation that has been drawn out of the nations to fulfill God's purpose over many generations so God loves his chosen nation he loves his portion And they, that is the nation over generations, are called according to his purpose. Now, just because they've gone astray, that doesn't mean that God isn't still at work. And what I think we can see here is that he will use their disobedience to teach them, the current generation and also future generations, he will use their disobedience to teach them something of of value and worth. We said that love warns, we know that, but we also know that love longs for restoration. So God will do what is needed in order for restoration to come. I love what it says in Second Chronicles 16 verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord roam the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let me read that again. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, The eyes of the Lord roam the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What does that tell us? And how can we contrast that with what we've read this morning from 1 Samuel? Well, it tells us that God always looks to the heart. That everything starts with the heart and everything stays with the heart. So let's use the the rest of Scripture to add some clarity to what's gone wrong here and identify God's solution. And then perhaps we can also learn from it personally in our own lives. We, We all know this other verse, God grants us the desires of our heart. That comes out of Psalm 20. And, you know, when I've heard that verse, I've always looked at it purely, I would say one dimensionally that he will give us the good things in our heart. And and that's a fair interpretation because the context of Psalm 20 is it's written about a people and to a people who are faithfully trusting God. That is the, the condition, that is the dynamic. But the important question to ask is what's in the heart? And is everything in the heart put there by God? When we say God will grant us the desires of our heart, what desires are in your heart? And is every desire in your heart put there by God? Or, or does this event in First Samuel imply that God might be willing to grant the desires of people's hearts even though they aren't fully in keeping with his will for the purpose Let me caveat that for the purpose that the people might learn something valuable from the consequences of of that. And in this case, for the consequences of rejecting God and rejecting his ways, will he grant the people the desire of their heart, a king, in order to teach them something valuable? And reveal what happens when you reject God and his ways. I would argue that 1 Samuel suggests that yes, God is willing to do that. And that all brings us back to the the basic foundational truth that as as part of a sanctification process, as part of a journey towards Christ-likeness, Yes, God wants to bless us, but he also wants to grow us and mature us. And we know that a large part of growing is teaching. And a large part of being taught is through experience. We are trained through through all of the experiences that we have. God can train us and teach us. And we go back to the teaching, of course, from from 2 Timothy, which reminds us that the Word of God is purposed to train us in righteousness. So, let's look at Jesus then, let's, let's help Jesus speak to this very idea. What does Jesus teach on the heart? Well, we know in John 7 that Jesus reminds the people that out of the heart flows rivers of living water, and don't we all love that scripture? We love the idea that out of the heart will flow rivers of living water, and that is one that we we wholeheartedly embrace. But also if we turn to Matthew 15, verse 19, and this is a a really key scripture for our contemporary culture when we think about how people live and we think about the issues of sexuality and uh, promiscuity and the issues of homosexuality and, of course, others that are in keeping with that. The uh, the Bible says, Matthew 15, Jesus says in that, that out of the heart will flow evil thoughts and he lists some like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and, and so on. Now that's not an exhaustive list, but in that we could add in anything here that isn't part of God's will as revealed in his word. So, Out of the heart flows good things, rivers of living water. But also there's a danger that out of the heart can flow evil things as well. The heart is at the heart of it all. And that's why we are encouraged to Proverbs 4 verse 23. We're encouraged above all else to guard our hearts because they are the wellspring of life. Guard our hearts, because they are the wellspring of life. The heart is at the heart of it all. What we see in this is that God used the people's desire for a king in the midst of rejection of him to ultimately reveal the desires of their heart to themselves, to shed light on the desire of their heart, to shed light on the condition of their heart. And as a result, Saul, who was chosen based on the wrong criteria, remember how they chose and defined Saul, that he was unrivaled, that he was from a distinct line of men and that he was a head uh, taller than everyone else. Saul is chosen. He is the result of the desires of their heart. God permits that and goes along with it in order to reveal to them the dangers of not following his will. But what is the one thing that Saul is lacking? What is the criteria that is missing in Saul? It is quite simply that he was not a man after God's own heart. He wasn't a man after God's own heart. That's what God is looking for in people who can be used mightily for him For his purpose in his kingdom. So what can we take from that personally? Well, I think let's look at those dynamics again of the heart. We remember that Lord is looking, roaming the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking to the heart. The second thing for us to remember is that God will grant us the desires of our heart, but what is in our heart And what should be in our heart? How can we shift our heart so that it is fully consumed by what God wants us to be focused on and and longing after? Is everything in our heart put there by God? No, but can we let our hearts be humbled and submitted to him fully so that everything in our hearts becomes of God? I believe it can be the case. Jesus reminds us that out of the heart come many things, rivers of living water, but also for us to guard against the things that can also come from our heart, the things that are not of God. Let's be mindful of them. Let's define them accurately and let's be careful of them because the heart is the wellspring of life Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to open your word and to learn more about this moment in history, which reveals to us more of the condition of humanity. It gives us incredible warning, and therefore incredible hope that we can walk your way as as opposed to our own. Help us, Father, to be led by your spirit as we go from this time back into our own reality, our own life, our own circumstance, so that we may glorify you. And most importantly, God, help us to understand how our heart can be fully focused on you so that it honors you in every, every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.